Hello and a very warm welcome to this episode of the Proximo podcast. This is your host, Thomas Hopkins, reporting to you from London. It is certainly an exciting time for the US offshore wind market, with the 800 megawatt Vineyard Wind One project reaching financial close on a $2.3 billion project financing last week. The deal is the first such financing for a large-scale offshore wind farm in the US. Here to discuss the way forward for US offshore wind following the Vineyard Wind deal is Brad Fierstein, a principal at Apollo Global Management. Brad, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Thomas. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Um, so to start off our discussion, perhaps I can just ask you to tell me a bit about Apollo Global Management's work in the US offshore wind sector. Sure. Uh, this is a sector that we've been following uh, for years, really. Uh, it's an exciting sector in the U.S., and, and I think uh, one of the most interesting things uh, going on in the, in the renewable energy space and energy transition. Um, so we've been following it for years. Uh, we made our first investment about a year ago uh, in a company called U.S. Wind. Um, U.S. Wind is developing a offshore wind project off the coast of Maryland, um, for which there are uh, two phases currently contemplated, one which has been awarded a contract uh, already and another uh, which we've recently uh, submitted a proposal to, to expand the project in Maryland. Um, that, that investment has been uh, a, a real exciting place to be for us uh, at, the, at the forefront of this industry as it is evolving very quickly in the U.S. Um, and it's given us a front row seat to a lot of other activities around the offshore wind space and, and, and different needs of the industry in order to meet the ambitious targets being set. Um, so, you know, we are closely following all sorts of other aspects of the offshore wind uh, supply chain, if you will, whether that's uh, steel fabrication facilities, port facilities, vessels, uh, transmission. Uh, there's a lot of things that need to happen and, and uh, exciting uh, projects and infrastructure to develop around the offshore wind space. So um, we think that there is a lot to do here from an investment standpoint over the coming years. Well, it's all very exciting. And um, just if I, if I look at the first deal that's closed, I mean, you know, Vineyard Wind is the first large-scale offshore wind farm to reach financial close in the U.S. Why has it taken so long to get offshore wind projects off the ground? It's a good question. Um, it's something that... Uh, you know, has a lot of different components to it. Really, if you look at Europe, um, Europe and the UK and uh, elsewhere globally are much, much ahead of the US in terms of the deployment of offshore wind, um, you know, with many gigawatts uh, fully operational and, and the US is really just getting started. Um, there are a lot of differences in the permitting process and, and political support for for those projects that have evolved over the years. But I think, you know, one of the things that's very compelling to observe on the European side is that the, the various policy support, uh, you know, has really helped to achieve its goal, which ultimately is the reduction of cost of offshore wind to the point now where many projects are, are basically unsubsidized in Europe, um, you know, and competitive with, with alternative installations for uh, renewable energy or really just 
electricity generation. Um, <clears throat> so the U.S. is just getting started. Uh, part of the part of the issues really stem from the permitting process, which is uh, controlled primarily through a centralized process with the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, BOEM. And that process has had its fits and starts with different uh, political uh, backdrops, but at this point we think has really turned a corner uh, in terms of helping the projects to take all the important stakeholder considerations into account uh, and to properly develop these projects, which are very massive undertakings. It is very important to get all of the environmental uh, aspects right and endangered species and uh, beach communities and, and all, all the different stakeholders who really you know, contribute to a successful project. Um, I think the the permitting process in the U.S. is is improving, but has has been a bit difficult to navigate historically. Um, there, you know, are lots of different uh, aspects of the projects that have to come together with all these different stakeholders. Permitting is one piece of it, obviously. Um, you know, but the the technical the technical needs for these projects in terms of sourcing equipment and supply chain uh, and the various infrastructure required to build and develop them is, is also really at a very early stage in the US. Um, and all of that needs to, to happen and come together as well. So uh, I th I'm very optimistic that we've turned a corner in the US and, and that Vineyard Wind um, you know, will, will be successful in its deployment, but um, notwithstanding all of the, the common themes, there are you know, many different uh, site-specific and project-specific concerns that, that everyone has to deal with you know, for their own projects. Uh, so it, it won't always be the same story uh, you know, once, once one is done. Yes, no, of course, that, that makes sense. And just speaking from a project finance journalist sort of perspective, we always kind of want to know if, you know, one deal that's closed might lead to a whole lot of other deals closing. And we tend to sort of want to take an optimistic view here going, oh, well, could this be symbolic of something going forward? So, I mean, to what extent do you think that Vineyard Wind is likely to act as a kind of pathfinder for future projects in US offshore wind? I think it will to some extent. Um in particular starting to set some precedents around financing around tax equity um you know i will say you know the key gating item for most offshore wind projects is the centralized permitting process um you know through through bohm um and the there are there are site specific and project specific issues, regional issues. Different stakeholders have different, um, you know, issues with the projects that need to be carefully considered. And so, when it comes down to the specifics of any given project and its timeline for permitting and approval, um, I don't think necessarily that you know just because. Vineyard wind has gotten done that that all these other ones will have an easier time. Everyone has to do the hard work of developing their project and, and carefully considering all of the, the different stakeholders and, and goals of the project, uh, not only to be in compliance with the permitting process, but also to ensure a successful outcome. Um, so, you know, I, I think with respect to permitting, every project will have to fight its own battle, so to speak. Um, but I do think that uh, as far as the market goes for 
you know, establishing precedent on financing, on tax equity, um, as well as helping to develop some of the supply chain and and very likely some lessons learned <laughs> that, that will benefit other projects in the future, I, I do think they will be a bit of a pathfinder. Thanks, Brad. And you, you just mentioned tax equity, and that leads me on quite neatly to my next question, which is um, how attractive is offshore wind to tax equity investors relative to onshore wind or, or solar, which are obviously more established in, in the US? And are the extensions to investment tax credits and safe harbor driving investment at all, do you think? Um, yes, I, I do think it's I do think it's attractive um, given the the current economics and cost of offshore wind projects in the U.S. Most projects are expected to elect the investment tax credit as opposed as opposed to the production tax credit, which is more commonly used for onshore wind. So it's a little bit more like a solar uh, investment profile for for tax equity investors, which also uses the ITC. Um, I do I do think there's a lot of it. Uh, you know, this, the amount of offshore wind and, and the capex related to that, and, and the underlying tax credits to be generated over the coming decade, is an enormous sum. Um, and so, the amount of tax capacity for that uh, needs to find a home. Um, I do think that it, you know it will happen. It will it, it will get done. But the the market for for tax equity, um, at least at the kind of scale of these offshore wind projects, uh, you know, and the same as large onshore wind and solar, you know, is relatively small universe of investors, large banks uh, who who take part in that market, and so. There is a little bit of a bottleneck, I think, there in terms of where um, the market appetite for the amount of tax equity will come from for offshore wind. Uh, that said, you know, there's various other you know policy options being explored uh, for for monetizing those those credits for projects. But I do think I do think the tax equity um, you know is a a uh, you know potential bottleneck in in getting depending on how many projects are getting developed and financed and when and what years and how much tax capacity there is in the market given uh, you know the just the, the numbers that we're talking about um, but yes from a you know attractiveness standpoint I think uh, you know the risks that tax equity investors take uh, with respect to offshore wind you know, are on par with, if not even lower than a lot of onshore projects, just due to the nature of the offtake agreements, um, you know, and and the types of uh, contracts that are in place uh, are, are really very robust from a project finance standpoint. Um, I, you know, as, as for whether uh, it is the extensions are driving further investment, I think they, they probably are uh, to some extent. You know, there's there's a trade-off, um, you know, between the federal support, the tax credit level, um, and the ultimate cost of the projects to be installed. Um, I, you know, the the current regime for issuing contracts to these projects is for the states to to offer their own um, their own contracts or offshore renewable energy credits, OREC solicitations. Uh, and so those those contracts are passed through to ultimately the ratepayers of the various states, and each state has its own system and program. And um, I think the 
the federal tax credit support helps to drive down the cost to the ratepayers uh, for the for the different states, and so that helps um, that helps make the project more competitive. Um, you know, and and so the the extension was certainly a welcome uh, addition to the to the mix as this industry is getting off its uh, getting its start. Excellent, thanks, Brad. And um, does the Jones Act remain a challenge for U.S. offshore wind developers? Yes and no. Um, you know, I think there are some interesting constraints around vessels and port infrastructure, notwithstanding the Jones Act. Uh, the Jones Act is a, is another layer of of complication uh, for developers to consider, um, but you know I think it the Jones Act has a long history of helping to sustain and and support the the marine industry in the in the U.S. Um, you know so and I I think there's almost no likelihood of the Jones Act be, you know going away, um, and so the the industry has adapted. Um, Block Island, as you know, was the first offshore wind project uh, in the U.S. that pioneered, uh, you know, installation here by using shuttle vessels, which were, you know, which were compliant with the Jones Act. Um, they brought the components from from port out to an international wind turbine installation vessel that remained offshore, and and that worked well enough. Um, it's it's the sort of current state of the art for a lot of projects being developed in the in the US uh, to use Jones Act compliant vessels to transport equipment, um, but to have the specialty installation vessels remain offshore. Um, that is a function of you know the the lack of existence of installation vessels currently in the US, although one is under construction uh, that Dominion is building. Uh, but those those vessels, uh, you know, even even if they existed as Jones Act installation vessels, the logistics of having those vessels pick up components from port as they do in Europe is far from straightforward uh, for the quite simple reality of the port infrastructure in the US and constraints with bridges in the way. These vessels have very tall jack-up legs uh, that frankly can't fit under most bridges where you would have to pass through to get to suitable port infrastructure in order to load that equipment. And so the reality is there's only a handful of locations on the Eastern seaboard that are even suitable for this. Um, and it's uh, it's an interesting part of the supply chain that needs to develop in parallel in order to uh, be able to support the amount of equipment and logistics around the offshore wind space. Um, you know, we've we've recently made an investment in a development site in Staten Island called Arthur Kill Terminal, um, which is you know one of the reasons we're so excited about that that project is is. The fact that it will be, um, you know, one of a very few accessible uh, port facilities without any air gap restrictions uh, to allow these vessels to um, to load load components and you know for the assembly and storage of, of components for offshore wind installation. That is actually very interesting. So, I mean, do you do you sort of see further port upgrades and installations going forward to try and accommodate? Uh, construction of wind farms as the pipeline kind of emerges going forward. Absolutely, um, I think it's a really interesting 
part of the, the puzzle that has to come together. Um, frankly, I think it's probably not quite getting the attention it deserves in the overall uh, scheme of things with the various infrastructure bill components being considered, um, the amount under consideration to be allocated for port infrastructure upgrades is really uh, you know, quite small in comparison to, to everything else. Um, and it's a really critical bottleneck in the in the in the supply chain for building all this offshore wind so um, you know I, I do think that the um, you know the investment opportunities around port facilities uh, you know will be there that said there's there's not that many suitable locations it, it, there there are geographical and physical constraints uh, that only make for so many, you know, suitable sites to have this kind of a facility developed, um, which is, you know, really, really quite interesting. Um, but I do think the Jones Act will result in, uh, in, you know, wind turbine installation vessel and, and other wind industry specialty vessels being constructed in the U.S. That's a good thing. It's good for U.S. shipyards. It's good for the marine industry. Um, it will cost more comparatively to build those vessels in the US as opposed to, you know, in Asia or, or in the Nordic countries, um, you know, but I think that will be part of the overall cost and economics that are factored into uh, developing these early projects, and that will begin to amortize out and, and pay dividends to the rest of the industry over time. So I, I do think, um, you know, everything will come together. It, it you know, the equipment exists globally. Uh, there are there will be ways to to build these projects and navigate in the meantime. But um, I think uh, uh, the attention to the vessel and port infrastructure side, um, you know, is probably a little bit lower than it should be uh, at the policy level. Um, it really is a, a very critical enabling piece of the puzzle to to reach the offshore wind goals. Well, thank you. And uh, you've sort of led me uh, again into the next question, because talking about well, questions of policy, um, how achievable is the Biden administration's target of reaching 30 gigawatts of installed offshore wind capacity by 2030, do you think? I think it's achievable, theoretically. Um, it's a lot. Uh, and 2030 is not that far away anymore. Um, so, you know, I think the the key to making that achievable will be top-down support from, from the government, federal, state, local, um, to making the permitting more efficient. Um, and, and really, like I said, supporting the build out of the supply chain, all the other infrastructure, the ports and the vessels uh, needed to make this happen. Um, you know, otherwise, uh, you know, we, we just end up with other bottlenecks down the road when, you know, only, so many projects can be built at any given time because the vessels don't exist or because there's nowhere to store the components while they're waiting. Um, you know, the, the, the need to support this very large build out, I think really extends beyond, you know, the, the areas that have gotten the most attention, which are the offshore lease areas and the OREC solicitations and, and things like that. There's um, a lot more to the logistics side of this than uh, sort of the, you know, analogous development um, cycle around offshore, uh, onshore wind and, and solar. 
So I do think that that part's critical and uh, it's certainly not impossible to achieve, but I do think it's aggressive to try to achieve 30 gigawatts by that time. Thanks, Brad. And just moving into a, a final question. I mean, I know we've talked about some of the challenges such as permitting, um, you know, that lie in store for US offshore wind, but just thinking about kind of some of the key remaining challenges for the US offshore wind sector moving forward, what, what do you think those are going to be over the next decade as we really sort of try to ramp up offshore wind capacity in the US? Yeah, I think my best examples for that are really the supply chain infrastructure side, the the ports and the vessels. Um, there are there's no shortage of challenges. Um, I think the the technology is advancing very quickly. Uh, you know, GE, for instance, with their 12 meg- megawatt Haliaid turbine. Um, you know, really before they started installing any of those, you know it became 13 megawatts and then 14 megawatts, um, you know, and so the, the technology and the evolutionary development of the, of the technology is moving so quickly that, um, you know, it's, it, it, the OEMs are going to have to keep up as well with manufacturing capacity. Of course, they are juggling the uncertainty in the U.S. on timing of projects and when things will actually be deployed. Um, you know, where in contrast, Europe is booming and Asia is booming and they're placing real orders and and installing turbines. Um, The U.S. has a lot of momentum currently, but it's it's far from a done deal. Um, So that certainty around the development in the U.S., you know, really trickles through the whole supply chain to make everything else work. Um, So, you know, I think the OEMs have a lot of work to do in, in terms of meeting the ramp up of of all the components that are needed um like i said the vessels and the port infrastructure and probably the most you know important unifying uh piece of that story is is the political stability side um and you know having to survive as an industry uh trying to get off its feet and you know in a in a in a environment of uh, the sort of, you know, partisan politics and, um, you know, changing support is really tough. Uh, and I think there's a lot of good momentum for offshore wind with the Biden administration. I think there's a lot of bipartisan support for the goals of renewable energy transition and offshore wind in particular. But that has to be, you know, consistent. And the the risk of you know losing some of that support or or even worse you know retroactive type changes that that undermine the stability of these projects and investment um you know would be a significant challenge for the industry uh you know to to recover from but i i do think at this point it's uh it's it's well on its way and 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 past the tipping point for for all of that development well i have to say that's very good to hear I'm, I'm afraid that's all we're going to have time to discuss today. Uh, but thank you once again to Brad Fierstein for sharing his views with us on the podcast. It's certainly been a very interesting conversation. Thanks to everyone for listening and be sure to join us again next week for more of your latest project finance, energy and infrastructure news and analysis from Proxima.